this passage in the Gospel of John sounds violent. Our Lord Jesus is aggressively cleansing the temple. We hear Jesus made a whip of cords to drive out the money changers and the animals. As he did this, it's implied he was raising his voice, perhaps yelling, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Who is this Jesus and why is he behaving in this way? Hewlett Glower in his essay on this text articulately helps us in our journey of Lent. He asserts last Sunday's text focused on the Lenten question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And today's text focuses on the question, what does it mean to be the church of Jesus? Corporate reflection may be stirred, but there is also a deep personal reflection in this text for us as well. In the Gospel of John, in contrast to the other Gospels, we hear over the course of Jesus' ministry about three different Passovers happening, maybe four. This is the first one. In the other Gospels, Jesus overturning tables takes place near his betrayal, the end of his earthly ministry. Carson, in his commentary on this passage, helps us to take this in. All four evangelists, he writes, frequently arrange their material in topical rather than chronological order. This first Passover in John is placed there on purpose, right after the miracle at the wedding in Cana. The wedding was a private affair by invitation only, an almost secret miracle that revealed Jesus' glory. And here, what a contrast. Here we have an extremely public setting during the Passover, which is crowded. Everyone has come, everyone is getting ready to worship, and Jesus begins this public declaration of God by driving people out and animals out of the temple and pouring out coins of the money changers. Imagine the scene. Cattle bellowing, sheep bleeding, turtle doves cooing, people yelling, and coins clattering to the ground. Such chaos. Jesus is doing this at the beginning of his public ministry. The meaning of this text can come to us in multiple layers. God is doing what God does, revealing God's self. As Jesus is walking the earth, Jesus is ushering in salvation and showing people how to live and revealing who God is. A part of what is about to really change is worshiping God. Once Jesus offers Jesus' self, as Amy referred to last week in her sermon when she spoke of the atonement, there is no other offering to be made. It is finished. As Jesus goes to the temple at the Passover early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is proclaiming change. The sacrificial system, the offering of animals, will stop. Jesus will become God's own self-offering for once for all. A new day of spiritual worship has arrived. The words in Zechariah that the disciples remember about zeal help put us in the context that helps us understand. Also in Zechariah chapter 14, we read, there shall no longer be any traders, not betrayal traders, marketplace traders. There shall no longer be 
traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day, the day when the Lord comes to Jerusalem. Jesus' actions are indicating that the Lord has come and the traitors must leave. In contrast to the disciples looking to the prophets to interpret what Jesus is doing, we hear the religious people respond by seeking to know Jesus' authority. What is the sign for this, for these actions? Notice they are not asking why Jesus did this. They know why. They are wondering if the Messiah has come. Here we begin a wordplay on temple. Jesus' enigmatic response to the authority question. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The people get a little indignant and clearly understand that Jesus is not literally speaking of the temple. Jesus is speaking of the temple of his body. The word temple is fascinating to consider. Over the last several months, we have heard narratives concerning worshiping God. Through the wandering in the wilderness, God dwelt in a tent. And we later heard about the building of the temple. And now we see Jesus coming in and cleansing the temple, the place of worship where God dwells. In the structure and function of temple worship then, there were places to be and things to do as people got closer and closer to the holy place. In approach to temple worship, there was process and time. Originally, the animal merchants set up their stalls across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives. Carson asserts that at this point in our narrative today, they were in the temple courts, the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court. We begin to see that the right things are present, but they're not in the right place. Temple coinage was needed as purchases were made, so money changers were necessary and they, cha- they charged a fee for their service. Paul Shoup, in his essay on this passage, helps us to see it for them and for us. More than likely, all involved, he writes, had simply settled into comfortable behaviors that enabled them to meet institutional goals, turning an increasingly blind eye to the unsavory possibilities of corruption inherent in changing money comfortable behaviors, institutional goals. We can resonate with that. God is cleansing the temple because things are not right. In addition to the movement of transactions into the temple area, we glean that folks were pocketing some money. Worship is affected. Deception is happening. Profit is being made, and it is all on the way to worship. No wonder Jesus cleansed the temple. I imagine if God showed up through those doors right now, it would affect us here in some ways today. Continuing with this concept of temple, today, for us, God dwells within us. We are individually and corporately the temple. We have churches, these beautiful physical buildings where we come to worship God, but God's presence is not limited to a physical space. God dwells within each of us, in the language of then, temple. As we corporately worship and we consider this narrative, particularly in this Lenten season, it may cause us to ask, what are the things, perhaps that we have over time, let slide into our sanctuary and become a part of our approach to God? What are our tables corporately? 
that we may need, that we may benefit from if they were upturned? Is there anything that needs to be driven out? This passage also always resonates with me deeply on a personal level. As each of us is in the place where God dwells, how are our insides arranged? This calls us all for some reflection about lifestyle and commitments. Where are the right things there, but maybe being used wrongly or inappropriately? What do we need to address in this Lenten season? What tables in our own lives would benefit from being upturned? What not only needs to be rearranged, but is there anything that needs to be driven out of our lives, perhaps let go of permanently? As we are at a bit of a tipping point midway through Lent, this narrative reminds us that Jesus' love and power come to save us. They also come to confront us. This is corporate, personal, and propositional. Our God calls us to respond in our deep places and in our corporate places deeply. Let us be assured of God's love toward us that never changes. But let us be responsive that we might not slide into slippery places corporately or personally over time. Amen.